You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of October 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. Coming up on today's programme... The U.S. government has upgraded its official exchanges with Taiwan and continued to provide military aid to the country in an attempt to use Taiwan to contain China. China's top diplomat visits Washington, D.C. amid tensions in the Indo-Pacific and ahead of a potential presidential summit. Later in the show, the hopes of both preserving and profiting from the Arctic. We'll also wrap up the latest business headlines. And look, he's about to go on holiday. Just nod and smile. You're a professional. You can do this. I've read that out loud again, haven't I? Yes, Andrew. Today, the Global Countdown is a special one. We celebrate 40 years of the Australian charts, playing some Australian music, of course. Of course. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing on Monocle Radio. And welcome to today's edition of The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi is due in Washington, D.C. today, ahead of meetings tomorrow with U.S. President Joe Biden and Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. This is partly, doubtless, path smoothing ahead of an anticipated meeting between Biden and China's President Xi Jinping in California in November. But it is not like there is a shortage of other talking points, not least the generally recently dismal state of relations between the two countries. Well, joining me now from Taipei is Lily Kuo, the Washington Post's China bureau chief. Um, First of all, the meeting itself, in the context of those largely dismal relations between Washington and Beijing, how how important is the fact that this is even happening? So this meeting is important because, as you said, it paves the way for Xi's meeting in the U.S. with Biden. And that's the key meeting that could really change the tone of the relationship and stabilize things. Um, How much of it as well is going to be the United States hoping they can figure out what is going on in Beijing? Because just in the last few days, we've had former Defence Minister Li Shangfu officially sacked a couple of months after he sort of vanished from public life. And former Foreign Minister Chin Gang, uh, who was sacked in July, has been punted off the State Council. How curious will Washington be for Washington rather be for insider gossip? I'm sure Washington will be very curious for that information. Um, And I think that those um, incidents that you name are important too, because that uh, it gets to the point of why this meeting is important for Xi Jinping and why this meeting should happen. Because for Xi, he's encountering a lot of challenges within China, um, aside from the political um, incidents that you named, there's also the economy that's softening, there's high unemployment, um, an increasingly hostile foreign environment for China. So for Xi, it's really important to show that he's in the U.S., he's going to have this high-level meet- meeting with Biden, and to sh- and he's able to show domestic audiences that he can manage China's most important relationship. Uh, well, on the subject of that rickety foreign environment, they will, of course, be talking about Ukraine, and they will doubtless be talking about the Middle East as well. But how far apart are the United States and China really on those two theatres? Don't they both sort of want all the trouble to somehow go away? Yeah, it's really interesting on Ukraine. I think Ukraine is pretty different for China is pretty different from 
the Middle East, um, China has been more, you know, in, it, with Gaza and Israel, China has also tried to say that it is a neutral party, which is what it says with Russia and Ukraine. Um, but um, it has less, uh, it seems to have less influence in the Middle East. And there's been a lot of questions over whether um, China and the U.S. can work together uh, and, and China can use its relationship with Iran to uh, pressure Iran to stay out of the conflict. But um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus that China would be willing to do that. Is it possible that China could be enticed away from its support for Russia over Ukraine? Because obviously early on, uh, China announced itself, you know, shoulder to shoulder with Russia, friendship without limits, etc. But that all rather seemed predicated on Vladimir Putin's initial prospectus that Russia could knock this over in a week and it wouldn't be terribly disruptive. Is, is, is China's patience with Russia's adventure in Ukraine necessarily limitless? That's a good question. I mean, Putin was just in Beijing and and their friendships, at least the gestures of that friendship and that support seemed um, as strong as ever. Um, I guess you could say that Beijing has also in some ways backed itself into a corner because it has so publicly pronounced its support of Russia. Um, and also I think Russia's support for China is important, um, you know, as it tries to counter the West and what it sees as uh, an alliance of Western countries trying to contain China. And from the United States' point of view, especially considering the possibility of an actual presidential summit, is there an amount here, and this is, you know, possibly cynical interpretation, but we are about to enter a presidential election year, um, the Biden administration trying to shore things up as much as possible before inevitably getting stuck back into China, because in the United States, you don't really lose votes uh, by teeing off at China. It's that that is the view in China. A lot of Chinese scholars um, and observers that we've talked to say, uh, we if we want to stabilize this relationship or fix things, we have to do it now. We have to do it before the election. Um, and just finally, from where you are, how much intention is being paid to this? Because obviously, the subject of Taiwan is going to be very close to the top of the agenda. In Taiwan, um, they're always watching uh, what happens between China and the U.S. very closely. Yes, that's right. Lily Kuo, thank you very much for joining us. You are listening to The Briefing. Here is Carlotta Ribello with the day's other headlines. Thanks, Andrew. Israeli tanks took part in a targeted raid overnight in northern Gaza as it prepared its forces for a ground invasion. The army described it as a relatively large incursion, suggesting it was the biggest foray since Israel started massing forces outside the territory in advance of a planned full-scale invasion. At least 22 people have been killed in mass shooting at a restaurant in a bowling alley in Lewiston, Maine, on Wednesday night. An intensive manhunt is underway for a suspect and police are asking residents to shelter in place. Lewiston is the state's second largest city and is about 36 miles north of Portland. And South Korea, Japan and the US have strongly condemned the supply of arms and military equipment by North Korea to Russia, saying they have confirmed several deliveries. North Korea is seeking military assistance from Russia to advance its own military capabilities in return for its arms support for Moscow. Those are today's headlines. Back to you, Andrew. Thank you, Carlotta. Russia's war in Ukraine opened quite the Pandora's box of geopolitical consequences around the world. Its impact can even be 
be felt in the Arctic, a region that has historically managed to remain relatively peaceful despite Russia's presence. But now the Arctic is also feeling the chill as cooperation between Russia and Western Arctic states unravels. This was a key theme at the Arctic Circle Assembly, which took place last week in Reykjavik, and which the team from Monocle Radio's foreign desk attended. Among the attendees was Tero Varaste, a global fellow at the Wilson Centre's Polar Institute. I began by asking Tero whether preservation of the Arctic and economic opportunities are necessarily contradictory. I would expand it. I wouldn't say both ways. I would say multiple ways. Mm -hmm. And why? So, first of all, if you think uh, this traditional way of saying that, you know, it's a line, where on the other end of the, on the end of the line you have preserving the nature and the other end of the line you have uh, doing uh, business you know that's like that's often the approach but i think it's very blindfolded why if you think of the developments for instance in the finnish lapland and the finnish uh, arctic areas there's been a lot of economical development which has also been very good for the indigenous peoples in the area the sami so instead of looking this from like one point to another through a line, you should look through a cube. It's always a cube, like a Rubik's cube, you know. If you turn here, it affects all the other things. So actually this means that uh, whatever you do, you have to be really careful and assessing this from these all multiple types of angles, but not just the line. That said, maybe you notice this more at an event like this when there are people from all over the world here. Is there still a, a gulf in understanding or a culture clash between how the people who live in the Arctic think about it and how people who don't live in the Arctic think about it? I think that's going to be the case always, to an extent. The people who don't live the Ar- within the Arctic and the people who are not the indigenous people of the Arctic uh, I think it's really hard to have a complete understanding of the way of living over there. And obviously, what, due to the climate change, the ways of living in the Arctic are rapidly changing. A lot of things are happening. I mean, we have landslides, uh, we have lots of erosion, we have fish migration, polar bears need to go further up, uh, to name just a, just a few examples. So it really affects their culture and, and, and way of living, which is uh, like becoming threatened. Just finally, and it is a, a question we have put to a few people because it's obviously a, a bit of an underlying theme uh, of this gathering, the recalibration of the strategic picture around the Arctic occasioned by Finland and Sweden, presumably joining NATO and nobody speaking to Russia anymore. Uh, do you get the sense that that change is permanent? And, and if so, what might that mean for the way that Arctic nations interact with each other? Oh, excellent question. So, first of all, let's start with the Arctic Council. And uh, as we're aware, the Arctic Council is the gathering of eight Arctic nations, including Russia. Whereas, uh, if and when Sweden gets into NATO, it's seven NATO countries and Russia. And uh, the decision-making within the Arctic Council is based on unanimous uh, uh, views. And when Russia is off the table, there cannot be unanimous views because one is off the table, which means that making decisions is rather hard. Norway has been very good during their chairmanship, so uh, they have been navigating excellently through this uh, problematic situation, and I I have to admit that to an extent uh, it has surprised many, which is for good, Uh, and uh, the the way they are able to operate as a paralyzed organization is, is, is really good. So we have this NATO 
uh, within the Arctic Council thing. Secondly, if you look into um, the different nations more thoroughly, so you have Canada, you have the US, then you have a number of European nations. Some of them are members in the European Union and some of them are not. And then you have Russia. So you have different types of jurisdictions and different types of coalitions behind these countries. And further on, Greenland with a special uh, special area and, and a special position. Going down to the European north, so uh, yes, 1,300 kilometers new NATO border, the Finnish border to, to Russia. At the moment, I would say that actually uh, there isn't that much military activity on the area because uh, the troops are mainly in Ukraine. So on a short term, uh, no like military pressure is, is expected in the area, but that's only short term. What's going to happen in the long term is another uh, other story. And what we have seen now just within the past two weeks is that uh, there's been... Uh, Activities uh, under sea where uh, IT cables and gas uh, cables have been hurt. Uh, we don't know who caused it. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions ar- around this, but uh, the hybrid threats uh, are really becoming uh, like more and more uh, apparent, even though it's not like military pressure, but the hy- hybrid threats. And looking into what's happening into the Scandinavian or the Fennoscandian North, i.e. Norway, Sweden and Finland, uh, how that area develops locally uh, has a very, very new significance because if you think of Finland and the geographical position of Finland, we're practically an island. And if the Baltic Sea becomes blocked for a reason or another or the um, maritime transportation within the Baltic Sea uh, is for a reason or another minimized, we're blocked. So this means that we have to urgently secure our passage to the Arctic Ocean or to the Atlantic, something which has been discussed for decades, but now there's particularly a, a new new reason for that. And also, secondly, taking into account the fact that we need to have uh, the military logistics working, should it be needed in the uh, northern European Arctic areas, something which doesn't exist at the moment. And this is, by the way, also mentioned in the new governmental program of Finland, whereas we have a new government now, and uh, these these things have been like acknowledged uh, within this uh, new governmental program. That was Tero Varaste from the Wilson Centre's Polar Institute. You're listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio, and there is more from the Arctic Circle Assembly on the next episode of The Foreign Desk at midday Saturday London time. The same stories, the same views dominate global news coverage. But The Globalist goes beyond the noise to unpack what's really happening, to find fresh perspectives and considered voices in current affairs, business and much more. She was doing this all on her own and I think that she's been a real inspiration to journalists around the world, particularly where there are tough areas of freedom of speech. I think that one of the mantras that's going to come out of Washington in the Biden administration going forward is unity, but unity with accountability. The Globalist, live every weekday at 8am Zurich time, 7am in London or wherever you get your podcasts. You are back with the briefing on Monocle Radio, and let's get a roundup now of some of the day's business stories with Ewan Potts at Bloomberg. Um, Ewan, it's not improving at one of the world's major renewable energy companies. Andrew, yeah, Siemens Energy says it's in talks with the German government about securing state guarantees as it struggles to shore up its troubled wind turbine union. Now, shares 
down 39% as a mar- measure of how serious the market is taking this. Uh, Munich-based uh, Siemens Energy is trying to get on top of what has turned out to be one of Germany's biggest industrial debacles. Back in August, uh, they said that mounting issues with malfunctioning wind turbines and unprofitable contracts are going to push the company to a $4.5 billion uh, net loss this year. Now, that shock uh, announcement dealt a big setback to turnaround efforts for its Spanish onshore wind unit. That has been a thorn in its side for some time. It's been loss-making for years. Wind turbine manufacturer, you might be surprised here, is not a profitable business for a lot of companies. Although the world is installing a lot of these things, there is a huge amount of of overcapacity. And a lot of that, of course, is driven um, by China. Siemens uh, Energy is the world's second biggest maker of wind turbines. It was actually a spin-off from Siemens, the German industrial giant, uh, and combined with Gamesa, which was a massive Spanish manufacturer. It's still a quarter owned by Siemens, but uh, Bloomberg sources uh, understand that uh, Siemens does not want to inject any more cash into this. So Siemens Energy, which <clears throat> says it doesn't have a, an acute liquidity problem, is looking for uh, state-backed uh, uh, backstops over the next couple of years, amounting to about 16 uh, billion dollars. So quite a lot of trouble for Siemens Energy at the moment. Uh, Ewan, is there any expectation that this will improve? Because as you have insinuated, it does seem incredible that you could be losing money selling renewable energy and associated equipment in Germany at the moment. This is a country which has had to do a crash reorientation of its entire energy infrastructure. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And of course, it's not just Germany. Of course, the whole world is investing in huge amounts of onshore and offshore wind. So you would think uh, that it would be a good place to put your money. But of course, it's not that simple investing cash. And if there is overcapacity, which uh, I think there is in this in this industry, then it doesn't matter that demand is high. Uh, prices are low and a lot of companies struggling to make a decent return. Uh, a little bit like the situation when the UK uh, auctioned their most uh, recent uh, or attempted to auction uh, some off- offshore wind capacity. The UK, of course, a massive uh, offshore wind producer. And the auctions have been pretty good thus far. But the re- most recent auction a few months ago attracted a total of zero bids because the offshore wind companies just didn't feel with the rising costs uh, they could make money by uh, selling electricity to the UK. So there are problems in various parts of this sector. And you, and this is one of those days where, unfortunately, I have to say that was the bad news. Now, what's the bad news? It's it's not going tremendously well in car retail either. Uh, no, it isn't. We are deep into uh, earnings season, Andrew, which you know always excites me. And we've had, well, some pretty poor numbers today, it has to be said. Uh, the banks are leading many of the decliners. We've had some disappointing numbers from some of the biggest banks uh, in Europe. But interesting to dig down into numbers from the car industry. Uh, they've had a pretty uh, decent couple of years. They have had a lot of supply chain problems. Of course, the pandemic really gummed up all their manufacturing process. But there's also a big bump in demand and they put the prices up a lot. Uh, and both used and new car prices have risen a lot uh, during the last uh, few years. So it's been a pretty good time to be a car maker. But it does look like things are starting to slow down. The global economy, of course, we know has been going through a bit of a bumpy patch in recent months. And it looks like that's starting to catch up with even some of the premium uh, manufacturers. We've been digging into Mercedes numbers today, and we also heard from Volkswagen. Mercedes reporting a drop in margins from a year ago. Remember, some of these margins were getting quite punchy during the pandemic. Average car prices have been declining, though, compared to a year ago at Mercedes. 
And the, the other end, inflation is finding the cost of everything from components to labour. Uh, on that issue, uh, also we got news from Ford uh, overnight that they have finally reached a deal with the United Auto Workers Union uh, in the US. Uh, they're going to get a 25% pay rise uh, over the next four years. Uh, an analysis suggests that's probably going to cost Ford something in the region of $900 billion. Uh, a lot of money for even a, a big car manufacturer. The other two companies, they have not resolved their strike action. So that is still ongoing in the US. But interesting to look at these uh, weaker margins uh, in Europe, and they're still affecting uh, uh, the premium brands as much uh, as the uh, the cheaper brands as well. So that is a little bit surprising because those have been resistant uh, thus far, but it does seem to be uh, spreading uh, this uh, decline in margins. Ewan Potts at Bloomberg, thank you. As always, you are listening to The Briefing on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Andrew Muller. It is the last item on Thursday's briefing, which means, yes, Fernando Augusto Pacheco is here for the global countdown. But, Fernando, it might be the last one for a while. Yes, for the next uh, few weeks. I'm sorry, listeners. Yeah, There'll uh, be no uh, global countdown. And I'm just going to say apologies <laughs> to all those listeners who got very briefly excited in that interregnum between me saying it might be the last one and then for a while. Just for two weeks. Just, just for, for two, two weeks. weeks. But... As I understand it, the theme of this week's Global Countdown is somewhat governed by your choice of destination. Yes, but in a way I found also a hook for it as well. Amazing. I am going to Australia for the first time this Friday. I'm extremely excited. Got some tips for new Andrew as well. I, I have to ask in that context <laughs> about your outfit, Fernando. Are, are you planning on playing some cricket once you get there? No, I'm uh, wearing kind of all white. Well, well a little exactly. bit ivory as well. This, so, is, this is why I'm asking. Exactly. No, it's just I'm, I'm feeling quite light uh, okay. today as well. Uh, but also, the Australian charts, they're celebrating 40 years oh, in thanks. 2023. I found this hook very last minute, I've got to be honest. We only started doing charts in Australia in 1983. There were other charts but they were not quite official they are riot charts they started in 1983 is that a fact that's a fact i'll be damned that's a fact uh and so i decided to look at some number ones uh, throughout history in the last 40 years okay but there's one rule here okay of course i mean to be honest some of the artists here they are kind of famous but i decided to skip kylie hansen perhaps the more obvious ones. So I chose perhaps surprising ones, maybe not for Australians, but for people outside Australia. A handsome Australian. I thought they were from Oklahoma. I I think they're from Australia. No, Maybe I'm completely wrong. I'm pretty confident they're from Oklahoma. I mean, we had Taylor Hansen in here recently. He didn't sound Australian to Oh me. my God. So... For, for you know, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm speechless. Not every day's a school day. Exactly, exactly. Anyway... Where are we starting? We have six songs today. They're in chronological order, so okay. that they are not necessarily better or worse. But number six is a very weird one because mm. it's not quite a song. Mm. Uh, I think we should listen to it and then we have, we, we have to explain. This is the comedian Ostentatious with Australiana. Well, I was shocked. I mean, how much can a koala bear? So I grabbed a beer, flashed my wanger at her and headed out to join the party. Pretty soon airs rocks in and things really started jumping. This Indian girl, Masu, turns up, dying to go to the toilet, but she couldn't find it. I said to me, mate, Al, hey, where can Masu pee, Al? 
Andrew, you are the one who actually has some explaining to do. This, I do have the, some explaining to do on behalf of my people. See, I'm... I'm this I'm, was number one for eight weeks. Oh, was it only eight weeks? God, it seemed like longer. Um... And I can recall that period quite well because this was the period in which all the most tedious individuals in the particular year of high school I was in learnt that thing by heart uh, and thought it was the absolute height of wit to recite it interminably. Um, it is a comedian called Ostentatious who had an inexplicable hit with an utterly unfunny monologue in which he linked together a series of extremely laboured puns based on Australian place names, animals and so forth. Do you uh, want to go Anna? I'll go if dingoes. Yeah, yeah and <laughs> That was actually one of the better jokes. Um, extraordinary. I, I, I have literally no means of explaining how on earth that happened, but there it was. Was it, was it really only eight weeks? Eight weeks, but he remains the best-selling 12-inch in Australia's history. Astonishing <laughs> and, and, frankly, shaming. Um, well, anyway, things can, at the risk of tempting fate, only now improve. What else do we have? I think you might like number five. I mean, they are an, I, they are an iconic uh, glam rock band from the 70s. But this song I chose, mm. I believe, actually, is their only number one um, in this Araya charts. Of course, okay. they, were not, they were not around in the 70s. It's Skyhooks uh, with Jukebox in Siberia. And by the way, we're going to listen to it, but I love their outfits. I mean, they're very extravagant. You surprise me. <laughs> Let's have a listen. Kind of quite catchy. Uh, it is quite catchy. That is from, I believe, I'm right in saying their sort of very brief comeback, circa mm. 1990. Their their peak was very much the 70s. It cannot be overstated what a big whoop uh, Skyhooks were in the context of Australian rock because they were extremely strange. Uh, they looked strange and they sounded strange and they sang about weird stuff and they were emblematic of a very specifically Melbourneian sensibility and Melbourneian sense of humour, which is mostly rooted in how much they hate Sydney. But um, they were hugely influential on subsequent Melbourneian bands, especially this weird combination of art rock, punk rock, glam rock that you saw in bands like Tism, Painters and Dockers, uh, and many, many others. Uh, they, they were a, a big thing, Skyhooks, and I, I do commend listeners who are curious about extremely weird rock and roll to check out their, their imperial period. I think they should look, and to be honest, you mentioned imperial, you're right. This song's from uh, 1990. I mean, they kind of had a resurgence, but this track was the only new track from mm. a compilation album. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, we should look out at their older the stuff The guitarist well. Red Simons became a TV star by being rude at a Talent Quest, which was part of a Saturday variety show called Hey Hey at Saturday, which actually had a gong of the sort which I have long dreamed of having here in the studio to silence boring guests, obviously not including you, Fernando. <laughs> uh, what do we have next? Number four, I think, is one of the best pop songs of all time. Okay. Uh, it's all about self-love. From 91, <laughs> it's Diviners with I Touch Myself. I 
I was, I was not myself a massive Divinals fan, but I, I have always kind of admired Chrissy Amphlett, who is singing there, for not really troubling to cloak the message of the song in metaphor or illusion. There's not really much mistaking what she's getting at, not so really, to speak. But it's wonderful, and it's been a hit worldwide. Of course, number one in Australia, but I remember in Brazil it was a hit, uh, in the US and many other countries. It was countries. a hit in Brazil, really? Absolutely. I've I used to sing as a child and maybe didn't understand the lyrics very much. I, I, I would hope you didn't understand but, the lyrics very much, Fernando. But Andrew, there's a cultural importance for this track because I think it became bigger than the song itself. Even uh, breast cancer awareness. Mm-hmm. Uh, this song became a kind of a national anthem uh, for that as well. So, you know, well well done, Divinos. Indeed. So, who, who is up next? I, I want to see your opinion on number three. Oh, they, you'll get they, it. Yeah, they were huge uh, internationally. And in fact, there's a lot of talking about than in Australia at the moment because when they ended the band I believe there was a lot of drama so there's a memoir by two of the members now it's called Love and Pain The Epic Times in Crooked Lines of Life Inside and Outside Silver Chair that's, okay. that's the band I'm talking about uh, well we're going to play a number three we have Freak which was a number one back in 97 and then I want to hear your real opinion on Silver Chair To be honest, Fernando, I thought then and think now that they were lamentable. I mean, at a time when, I mean, there were a million bands who were painfully derivative of whom Silverchair were obviously painfully derivative, but I thought they were among the most painfully derivative. The only real joy they brought me was the derisive nickname that was bestowed upon them by... I wish I knew who coined this. It must have been an Australian because it is dependent on listeners' understanding that there is a very popular children's television program called Bananas in Pyjamas. So Silverchair often ended up getting referred to as Nirvana in Pyjamas. Ouch. (laughs) Well, at least I'm sure you're enjoying the drama. Uh, Apparently there's been a documentary on Australian TV talking... Because Daniel Joan, of course, the the vocalist, I mean, I think he's not in friendly terms with the other two members uh, of the band. I used to think Daniel Joan was quite handsome I remember in the 90s um, I don't know what he's up to at the moment well that showbiz uh, what, what's next well I think it's it's too, a bit too rocky for now so I think we need something dance pop and in fact there was we though? I think we do okay. need that's the first Australian dance act to top the charts in Australia and in the UK as well okay. uh, and some people think they're one hit wonders because they had the song you know don't call me mate don't call me baby but I didn't chose that one which okay. was also number one I chose who the hell are you by Madison Avenue a classic <laughs> Now, 
See, Fernando, for all the build-up you gave it, like this was some great inescapable pop hit, that is literally the first time I am hearing it, and to be clear, the last. Oh my God, so I think I'm not hitting the right spot here with my Australian charts. I mean, with Skyhooks, I think I did a little bit. Maybe the number one? Well, we're running out of options. <laughs> we're running out of options. Uh, that's from 2007. I think it's fun. They're identical twins. We all like identical oh. twins in the world of music, right? Some electro-pop vibes. Okay. Again, this song was big all around the world. They are the sisters of the Veronicas, of course, who've hooked me up. Do you think anything was missing here? Well, I, mean, I was just going to say, it, it, it could have been worse. They could have been triplets. Um, what do I think? I mean, I, I scarcely know where to start. The, the, the rich rock and roll legacy of my nation and people uh, reduced to that abject selection. Fernando, <laughs> it, it, it's just appalling. Uh, before you go, however, like I am actually genuinely excited uh, about your trip. Australia is a fabulous place to visit, but especially for the first time. I think it's, it's one of those places. Um, with no particular preconceptions of what might await you, what actually are you most looking forward to? Well, I, in fact, there might be an interview or two I might be doing for the day, even though I am on holiday, mm -hmm. but I might be meeting a platypus, like a real You're going to one. interview a platypus well, for the yes, daily? That yes. would be outstanding. <laughs> I think that could be potentially one of the highlights uh, as well from, from my trip. Th they are, I'm just warning you now, Fernando, a, a relatively quiet creature, your platypus. They're poisonous as well, so I have to be careful. Fernando, you have to be careful because everything in Australia is poisonous. Seriously, the advice I will give you, and I will give this to you in public for the benefit of passing listeners who may be contemplating a similar trip, which is, unless somebody who knows what they're doing gives you specific permission, please just don't pat anything. Uh, Got it. <laughs> Fernando Augusto Bisheko, have a fabulous trip and thank you for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Harrison Warlock and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. The Briefing returns tomorrow at the same time, midday UK. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks for listening.